Welcome to another episode of the Old Soul Movie Podcast, a show that features backgrounds, reviews, and reflections of some of the most influential movies ever made. And now your hosts. podcast and welcome back. It is awfully snowy out, so I feel like this is a perfect day to watch a couple movies. And it is February, which is Black History Month. And this month, we really want to focus on Black stories, Black characters, Black actors of old Hollywood. And we've definitely mentioned this before on the podcast. We could absolutely be more diverse. As we all know, Hollywood has a long history of racism. And I feel like some of these movies need to be shared more, even outside of February. But uh, we definitely want to take time to acknowledge some of these voices at the present time. Anyway, this month, we have been trying to figure out what movies we want to share. And I've been kind of thinking about it. And I think that imitation of life is just Both versions are so important historically to race depiction in film. And I was like, gosh, do we cover the 1934 version? Do we cover the 1959 version? It it was so hard. And we're going to have a Whopper episode and cover (laughs) both. (laughs) Yes. And to say hello, Isabella, my sister is here. Hello, everyone. I'm excited to be back for this episode. Yes. So we are just going to talk about both because honestly, here's the thing. I think the 1934 version was so groundbreaking, earth shattering for the time. However, it's hella problematic and has, (laughs) you could say that again, (laughs) a lot of issues, but there are a couple pluses. And I think that the 1959 version, mm, improves upon things or tries to capture things better at the very least. But there are issues with that too. I just think that they're kind of like a case study in the times that they came out in, in relation to what was going on in terms of civil rights in the 1930s and the 1950s, like what was going on in the United States. So I think they're mirrors of the society that they came out in. And I think it's really important to analyze the essentially same story to an extent with different time lenses. So that's why we're covering both. And I also wanted to cover the imitation of life story because I think it's really important to not focus so much on male-centric stories and voices, but to really look at women and women of color. And so I think that this is just such a unique piece given the intersectionality of the characters being presented. So we are going to hop into it. Um, Before we got too much into things, obviously, I want to put the disclaimer that we are both white women. And I always get a little bit, um, you know, nervous about doing justice to the identities that are being shown on screen. So I'm really going to try my best because I think it is really important to amplify and highlight those voices, especially in such a repressed time when media just did not show these identities in the best way. So I'm hopeful that we can do that now in the present day, but please feel free to open dialogue with me if there's something I could have said or done better. 
Okay, so we are going to start with the 1934 version of Imitation of Life. I'm going to try to kind of speed through this one a bit because I kind of want to focus a little bit more on the 1959 version, but uh, I have a lot to say. I mean, I think on both. I have two million thoughts. I'm worried that this episode is going to be two hours. Hopefully this will be enjoyable for maybe a long distance car trip or plane trip or cooking a massive dinner for your Super Bowl party. I don't know. Oh, because <laughs> like hearing our voices, that could be it. That could be I, all it needs. <laughs> way, way, to, way to really check me on my, my vibe. <laughs> yeah, Emma. Come on, people like us. <laughs> uh, all right, Invitation of Life, 1934. It was directed by John M. Stahl. Screenplay was by William J. Hurlbert. It is based off of the novel Imitation of Life by Fanny Hurst. More on that later. It's produced by Carl Lemley Jr., who is actually the son of Carl Lemley, the founder of Universal Studios. So this is a universal picture, if you didn't know no. that from the Globe title sequence when you watch the movie. Uh, but oh. yes, its running time is 111 minutes. All right. Some of its accolades, because it did receive some Academy Award nods, it was nominated for Best Picture, the big one, Best Assistant Director for Scott R. Beale, and Best Sound Recording for Theodore Soderbergh and Universal Pictures. Uh, also, in 2005, Imitation of Life was selected for preservation in the United States as National Film Registry for being culturally, historically, aesthetically significant. And it was also, in 2007, named by Time Magazine, one of the 25 most important films on race. So again, the 1934 version. And there's good reason why it's important. I think that it really tackled the story of a Black woman, maybe not in the best way ever, but it brought some issues to light. So let's go over the cast and some of the background with the cast, because I think that that's really cool. It gives you even better appreciation for some of the stories, hearing some of the actors' backgrounds. We have Claudette Colbert as Beatrice B. Pullman. Claudette Colbert was a very famous old Hollywood actress, and 1934 was a huge year for her career. Not only was she in this film, but she was also in the very famous rom-com that we covered, It Happened One Night, as well as Cleopatra. So she was on loan from Paramount to Universal. Again, like we said, actors and actresses' careers really were in the hands of their studios, not their own. Uh, and then we have Louise Beavers as Delilah Johnson. So I would say that her performance in this is very often considered a very big Oscar snub in Oscar history. Louise Beavers' character is just integral to the plot of this film. Uh, she's in so many major scenes. The, the white woman in this movie would have even been successful if it hadn't been for this black woman so i mean she's so important and yet she did not receive top billing and she was not given an academy award nomination despite several critics saying that she should have been nominated and that it was the finest performance of 1934 uh so you can see the disregard and the racism mirroring the art in real life as well uh, and it, again, we'll mention this i'm sure a couple times or later on in the podcast uh but hattie mcdaniel didn't win her Oscar until 1939. So that's five years after this, or well, I guess 
if that Oscars takes place the following year. So you know what I mean? (laughs) Not until a little bit after this, but I mean, there could have been a chance that could have been Louise Beavers. Anyway, more on Louise Beavers outside of this film. She was originally from Georgia, but her family moved to California. When she was young, she was involved in basketball and choir. She actually worked a few jobs before acting. She worked as a dressing room attendant, and she was a maid to the silent film actress Latrice Joy. She started her acting career in the 1920s, but was initially hesitant to audition for parts because essentially Hollywood's portrayal of Black characters, not the best. And honestly, she was often stereotyped into that quote-unquote mammy position. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Uh, In fact, I was looking at her IMDb credits and at least 51, if not more, of her name character credits are just made or so-and-so's made or mammy without a name. And for those of you that aren't familiar with that term mammy, it's an offensive phrase that was used for formerly the Southern U.S., uh, a Black nursemaid or nanny in charge of white children. Uh, Even in 1942's Holiday Inn, which did feature blackface, the character she played in that movie is just listed as Mammy. So that's 1942. That's, you know, almost a decade after this, which I just think that, you know, many would agree that's very dehumanizing and degrading. So in another complicated legacy, she, along with two other actresses, one of them being Hattie McDaniel, actually starred as Beulah on the TV show Beulah, which was considered the first sitcom to star a Black actress. However, that show is heavily criticized for its stereotype caricatures of Black characters, and the NAACP has spoken out against the show several times. So again, it's like a prominent role, but at what cost of reinforcing stereotypes? Not only her performance is quite lauded, but the character Piola, played by Freddie Washington, was highly considered one of the most interesting elements of this movie. Uh, So Freddie Washington is Piola Johnson. Freddie Washington to me is just really cool. And I think she's a woman that needs more attention drawn to her. I know I've spoken about her before on the podcast, but I mean, first of all, this role is pretty groundbreaking in the sense that a black actress was actually cast in a role playing a black character. That was not common. Whitewashing was still very prevalent. But more on this later with the 1950s version and the casting decisions that would go for Piola's equivalent. Uh, so Freddie Mercury, <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> wow, Fre- Freddie. <laughs> so Freddie Washington met both criticism and gratitude for this role. The criticism came by some in the Black community that found that someone of mixed race hating their identity was just completely wrong and inaccurate. But she also received letters thanking her for her portrayal of a light-skinned Black woman struggling with identity. So I, I think it's a, it's a complicated role. It's a very complicated role, and we'll dive more into that later. But I just, I think it is very, very exceptional and noteworthy that a black actress was in this role because I think colorism is extremely real. And I think that having a black character battling this colorism, this internalized patriarchy was important to show and honestly pretty 
progressive in terms of sharing stories. Um, And this is honestly maybe one of the earliest times I think that topic was brought to the forefront. So very important in terms of 1934, this is being shown in a widely spread platform. It's my understanding also that there were Black actresses chosen for the child versions of Piola as well. But more on Freddie Washington personally, uh, she has led a really interesting life. Her mom died when she was 11 years old and she had to help raise her siblings and her family eventually moved to Harlem. And it's been said that in real life, many people in the industry did encourage her to attempt passing as a white actress for roles to be a big star. However, she's been very adamant that she always acknowledged her Black identity with pride. And in 1949, she said she was very honest about being Black and she wanted to show that you don't have to be white to be good. And I think that's just very powerful, definitely in any time, but particularly in consideration of those times, uh, you know, leading up to the civil rights movement. Yeah, that's that's really awesome. And it's especially very different than the character she portrays, too. Oh, so that's pretty cool. For sure. For sure. Uh, she was very involved civil rights activist and she helped found the Negro Actors Guild of America or NAG to advocate for more well-rounded roles for black actors and actresses. I love that. That's awesome. Uh, and I, I think that this quote that I found by her just was really, really cool. And I think it's important to keep in mind as we talk through this movie a bit more. But Freddie Washington said, quote, I have never tried to pass for white and never had any desire. I am proud of my race. In imitation of life, 1934, I was showing how a girl might feel under the circumstances, but I am not showing how I felt. I was slightly uncomfortable while making the scene where I stood before the mirror asking, why am I not white? No person who strives to be the least bit intelligent should allow a thing like color, something for which none of us is responsible, to mar his life or influence his judgment. Wow. Round of applause. <laughs> what a woman. Freddie Washington's so cool. I'm a huge yeah. fan. Um, but I, I wish, like, again, you have someone who's going through this lived experience. I think it would have been just incredible if they had asked her for her input while creating this picture. That would have been great. I mean, she just seems like a phenomenal person that I think that she definitely could have had a lot of input for this. Uh, Absolutely. Or even the, you know, even the fifties version, it's just, yeah. Yeah. Really cool. Um, I'll quickly go through the rest of the cast. We have, Warren William as Stephen Steve Archer. We have Rochelle Hudson as Jesse Pullman, age 18. We have Ned Sparks as Elmer Smith. Dorothy Black as Puella Johnson, age nine. Juanita Quigley as baby Jesse Pullman, age three. Marilyn Nolden as Jesse Pullman, age eight. And yes, (laughs) so diving into the background on the book itself that this was inspired by originating from. So Imitation of Life was a popular 1933 novel by Fanny Hurst. Fanny Hurst was a white American writer. She supported and wrote a lot about topics and social justice pertaining to women's rights and Black equality. It's often considered that one element contributing to her passion towards racial oppression was her friendship with Zora Neale Hurston, 
a very influential Black writer. Uh, One novel you might know from Zora Neale Hurston is Their Eyes Were Watching God. So Hurston, okay, this is going to sound confusing because one's name is Hurston, one's name is Hurst. Hurston (laughs) is the secretary to Hurst. And it's claimed that this story was inspired by a trip that they took together. So that is a black woman and a white woman who have, you know, a working relationship and a friendship going on. People have mixed feelings about the novel. A lot of the criticism relates to the stereotypes of Delilah being a mammy figure, as well as Piola rejecting and denying her black identity. Uh, I mean, Freddie Washington has that critique, it sounds like. It was a little bit of a hurdle to get this film even made. When this film was made, Joseph Breen is full on enforcing the production code. Our good pal topic, the production code. So the script didn't get Breen office approval until they were about two weeks into already shooting. So they took a gamble. They were like, we're just going to go for it. One of the production code limitation guidelines uh, that Breen was mostly concerned about was the topic of miscegenation. What is miscegenation, you might ask? Well, it, it refers to people of different races having sex resulting in mixed race children. And he said that this movie, quote, not only violates production code, but is very dangerous from the standpoint, both of industry and public policy. Uh, Yeah. So a lot of racism and hate intertwined with that statement. And there was a lot of pushback against how people of color were going to be portrayed on screen in these starring roles. Another thing that I think is maybe worth addressing is that there in this 1934 version there are some obvious parallels to the aunt jemima pancake mix and syrup products with delilah's image being used for the pancake syrup business right so at the present the formerly known aunt jemima pancake mix brand is now called the pearl milling company It was originally called the Pearl Milling Company. However, in 1889, the founders decided to brand their product under Aunt Jemima to kind of distinguish it. Aunt Jemima derives from a vaudeville caricature of an enslaved, quote unquote, mammy persona that was portrayed by an Italian-American actress, Testa Gardella, often in blackface. And then the term aunt was often used to address people who were formerly enslaved and uncle, uncle as well. Uh, You have um, Uncle Ben, the other product that's also gone through rebranding. That's right. Yep. So no, there was not a real black woman named Jemima who was an aunt who made excellent pancakes. It was two white dudes who ironically use the image of a black woman for their own success. But people had spoken out about this actually for years, uh, including the Chicago World's Fair in 1893. So this has been a a long battle. And it wasn't until 2020 that the branding was finally dismantled. Thank God for 2020, am I right? Right. So (laughs) that's the backstory of Aunt Jemima Pancakes Mix. 
And then you look at the the story that goes down to this, and it is a white woman, and then she uses this front of a black woman for marketing. Um, but again, we'll keep diving into it. So yeah, once again, you have this caricature archetype launching this business for a white person's success, both in real life and in the story. That's definitely, uh, yeah, the entire time I was watching the 1934 version, that was all I was thinking about was Aunt Jemima and Pearl Milling Company. That was the only thing that I kept thinking of. And I actually, uh, you know, it was interesting seeing a comparison to it because I, I felt like it gave me a good background on like the real life situation too. Yeah, absolutely. Here's where I think that there's particular irony for people to be maybe in the uproar of this character being a black woman trying to pass as white when this came out, like, you know, from Joseph Breen or whoever might have issues like racist people watching this. Mm -hmm. I just, I think that there's a sense of irony that I can't help but point out when I look at both versions of imitation of life the 30s version and the 50s version you know in the 30s version there's controversy and uproar about and in the story about this black woman trying to pass as white and then you have also in the 50s this non-black actress passing as black but that's not causing a huge uproar at that time and I feel like in this way you see, how, how am I trying to put this? You know, these stories, there's anger about this black woman passing as white, but then you have these white people using the black image for their own success. So it's like, it's, it's okay for the white people to take on the black identity or, you know, use the black imagery, but it's not okay for the black woman to passes white in these stories. So I, I think you just, you have, it, there's just so many life imitating art, art imitating life things to look at, um, whether it be the pancake mix in real life or on the show, or, you know, a black actress playing a black character or, or a non-black actress playing a black character in the fifties version. You just have to look at how this was received and that long lasting systemic racism no it's just it's a it's a very heavy topic and I I just I mean I feel like you did a very good job of covering it I just people just suck that's what it really <laughs> boils down to you just racism is cringe and people <laughs> can suck so badly and I just I can't I I can't deal with I, it's going to be very hard for me to not swear this episode because racism is just so fucking stupid to me. I just, I can't believe it. Uh, uh, just, it's unreal. It's, it's really unreal. And you can cut all of this out if you'd like. No, it's, I mean- <laughs> it's just, like I, because here's the thing, like, I feel like I'm educated on everything, but I can't speak as proper as you about it just because it makes me so mad (laughs) and I just don't know like I don't know how to not sound pissed off about it I really don't no sound pissed off it's it's something worth being pissed off about (laughs) I've got a and I have a lot of feelings about the 1934 version don't you worry about that but man oh man 
<laughs> so actually on that note, right before we get into the rewatch, I'm just going to give like ahead of time. I feel like most of my notes were just like pissed off. This is stupid. <laughs> F that. <laughs> um, yeah. But here, here's the thing. And that's just it. it this is very much, you know, <clears throat> black women's stories. But I think it's important, especially as a white woman myself, to be critical of the white women characters in this movie. I actually, I saw a um, tweet post um, today and I'll just share it. Uh, It's from tweets by Bilal. And it just really stuck with me. And I think that that's what makes me want to go in hard while talking about these stories. But uh, tweets by Bilal. One of the problems is that slavery is taught as the history of black people and not the history of white people. So like, wow, that just really stuck with me and hit me that we're taught, you know, this is a black experience, but we have to look at the oppressors role in things. And that's why I think it is important to look at these stories because you have these groundbreaking black character stories being shown and brought into light, but you do have very much a lot of oppression involved. And it's important to look at the landmark and also what might stifle the story. So no, I, I, I know this isn't, you know, necessarily a story celebrating in either version of the movie, celebrating black joy. And there is a lot of trauma, but I think it's important to look historically at where filmmakers of old Hollywood were at with telling the stories of people of color. I would agree. As frustrating as it is to see stories that just are more so showing traumatic experiences for the Black community, it's also, it is very important because growing up, I mean, really all we can hope for for future generations is that there will be less racism that children will have to go through growing up. But it's, I think it's important to show from the historical aspect. So uh, I think it's good for that. For sure. Absolutely. So without further ado, we're going to try get through the (laughs) rewatch and then we'll get into the 1959 version. So 1934, Invitation of Life. Very 1930 style. It's a little grainier. It's not as high quality as you see later on. Or like by high quality, I mean, that's just where the technology was at the time. And I always think it's cool looking at movies from the 1920s and early 1930s. That's kind of outside my preferred eras. Uh, But I do appreciate watching to see what was going on with film. Uh, And it was very interesting. I, I don't know if I just hadn't noticed this before or hadn't noticed it in other movies, but the um, the production code stamp of approval was right there <laughs> in the on the forefront that it was ready to go. I watched these on Amazon Prime, by the way. Uh, I don't know about you. Did you? I also watched it on Amazon Prime, yes. Unfortunately, they are not free right now. I'm going to, you know, ho- hopefully someone out there in the <laughs> streaming industry <laughs> will maybe stream one of these for free maybe plex <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i bet it's on there actually i've oh. been told that if you make a complaint if something's not on there they file it immediately and they get whatever is not on there on there immediately so. let's rally and get this for free somewhere <laughs> <laughs> but yes um here we go the movie i yeah already the 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 
the language, the the dialogue mm-hmm. that's used for Delilah. Also, I'm really going to try not, they have different names in the 30s version, 50s version. Just give me a, give me a break if I. <laughs> make, make it a bit complicated. I will if, say it's all different names. If so. I say one, yeah, the new versions of the older, the older, the new, just have mercy. Um, but yeah, the, the dialogue for Delilah, when, you know, saying things like, does that mean we get to stay or however it goes? Uh, there's a lot of dumbing down. And bear in mind, this is films before the Gone with the Wind atrocious stereotyping that Mammy speaks with in that movie. Hattie McDaniel um, talks in that movie. So, like... Yeah, like I'm glad I'm glad you find them to your like I don't the misuse of grammar it just it's very wrong because it's like black individuals do not speak like that there's this wash of southern improper grammar that's I think applied because it's perpetuating those long-standing racist tropes but I think one of the number one things that like pissed me off was I felt like this character, this role, the way she's written, uh, perpetuates the quote unquote happy slave patriarchy trope. Uh, she's rubbing her feet. She is like, I'll work for nothing. I'll work for free. I'm happy just serving you <laughs> it's it's wrong it, it's, it's, it's unbelievable a, it's a racist caricature and then the pancake recipe oh. she at first she says oh it's a secret and then she just straight up shares it it's just very- so, okay <laughs> yeah i don't know i mean she literally said i i will be taking this recipe to my grave and then in the same breath, then goes and tells Beatrice what the recipe is, which, fine, whatever. Maybe she really likes Beatrice. I don't know. I don't know if that plays into their stereotypes or whatever. I don't know. But I think it absolutely does. It's just, it's very subservient. It's It's not... To me, I mean, again, I'm white, but like, I just don't find that to be, you know, an empowering or accurate or believable even portrayal. Like, yes. even, even, like, like, okay, I like to cook, and you know, like, again, this is, I know it's totally different, but even just from a character standpoint, I don't, I, I don't know. Actually, I guess I share some recipes, but I mean, I have some family recipes that I would just not give out, like our pumpkin cookie recipes. I Never. think that our family's pumpkin cookie recipes are by bar none the best pumpkin <laughs> cookies in this world. But if someone asked me to share that recipe, I, I think, I think I would totally get it. I think I would take that to my grave too. I, yeah. I was. I would, but it's just Beatrice, Beatrice, Beatrice. I have a lot of problems with Beatrice as is, but everything she does with this recipe from the second she hears about it is unreal and unacceptable. If I gave someone our family pumpkin cookie recipe and they did with it what Beatrice did 
with that pancake recipe, you better believe it's game over for that. That is acceptable. When she goes and puts an offer on that storefront and then she plays it off like it's her recipe for a plays it off like it's her recipe b i'm talking about b and then without and then on top of it without talking to delilah first yeah. oh my god <laughs> oh my god and i just i could feel i could feel exactly what delilah was feeling when they when beatrice went forward and decided, oh yeah, I'm gonna rent this place and I'm just gonna use this recipe that isn't mine and she's just gonna cook because she does whatever I want her to. Yeah. Um, I I could see the fear in Delilah's face. She was just like, how is she gonna afford any of this? She can't. She yeah, well, can't you know, and you know, and, and on top of that, she's definitely not paying Delilah fair wages on top of Absolutely it. Like there's no chance not. if she's renovating this place. So it was frustrating for me because this felt like enslavement it was like yeah. full-on enslavement it was coerced and I I'm and I think like I I like putting myself in the mind of someone in 1934 watching this given I have been built by different educational and life experiences but I'm trying to put myself in the mind of watching someone in 1934 watching this and it's upsetting to think that someone might think this is socially progressive back then See, like, I, I wrote down the one line that Beatrice said to Delilah. Said, You're going to make your pancakes and I'm going to sell them. Thus basically saying, I'm going to sell your pancakes with your pancake recipe that you gave me. And I'm going to make all the money. And then I'm going to decide what goes on with the money because I am the salesperson. Yep. Like, what? I just wrote question marks next to that quote because I didn't know how to feel. It's like when you watch Shark Tank and <laughs> then Mark Cuban is like, or I'm trying to think who would do this out of the sharks. Maybe Mark. Definitely. Maybe. Mm, Kevin, maybe. Maybe Barbara. I don't know. They all do it. <laughs> but it's like watching a shark on Shark Tank with this poor, struggling little business. And they're like, I'll help you, but I'm going to take the majority of your profits. <laughs> and the, but in this case, she doesn't even get that. But again, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. We'll get there. We'll get there. We'll um, get there. We're just getting mad. <laughs> so here's what's interesting in the story to me. It Like, okay, this is where this is where my real interest gets peaked a little bit you see piola young piola going through initial scenes of shame of her mom and internalized patriarchy uh and then there's i think it's in this one there's a a scene where uh piola is called black but then that's treated like a like that's a bad word um and I think through, you know, nowadays with much gratitude towards the social movements that have brought us to this point, people work so hard to associate that term with pride. So I, I mean, there's a lot of reclaimed identities across different marginalized groups, but it was kind of from a historical point or from a historical archaeology point, 
uh, interesting to see that like black being treated like a bad word where now it's a word that we capitalize. So it's just cool to see that how far that came. And then the heartbreak you have listening to Piola saying, you made me black. In Piola's case, you know, to blame her for and, and, you know, show that hate with race, it's really devastating. And like Freddie Washington stated, not everyone obviously feels this way, but you can't help but think at this time with segregation being so prevalent that that message is already being ingrained in kids. I mean, kids can identify race and stigmas and stereotypes with race and gender and anything really so early on. So I think that it was important to show that from a child's perspective, which I think is also not typical. Back on the pancake train, major mixed feelings here with this. And here's why it's mixed instead of just straight up anger. On one hand, you you do technically have women going into business together, right? Like, no, I, oh, I know, I know. It's not, it's yeah. not right. It's not, and it's really not them going into business together. There is a teamwork element by teamwork element. Someone does all the work and the other one takes all the credit. Uh, and then on top of that, it's the black woman doing all the work and the white woman taking the credit. But then she like, puts anyway. Um, so it's progressive in a sense, like, and you know, and that's very 1930s. Like, you know, you're coming out of the great depression. These women are tr- like, women are trying to, you know, help provide for their families and all of that. So it very much reflects the times. It's progressive in the sense of women advocating for their business, business minds. However, it's a very uneven deal. Uh, like, yeah, Delilah it, was only going to get 20%. Yeah. Like, well, oh my God. Like, oh, like, like that was a huge favor. Oh, 20%. It was all Delilah's doing. Well, not only that, not only was it literally all Delilah's doing, but then the fact that they made Delilah's character follow it up by saying, I don't care. I don't care about the money. I just want to live with you. Yeah. uh, Beatrice. What? Again, happy slave. Oh, narrative, you know, stereotype. And they make Delilah so naive. So, you know, almost like they write her unintelligent, which is just not right. She's the idea behind this. And B's a shark. She's she's a shark. She is. She is a shark. I get then frustrated for the remainder of the movie. Like, here's the thing with Delilah. I actually, you know, I get not being business savvy. I get her maybe coming from a background that didn't put her in a situation where she automatically knows business. But then, you know, looking at this white woman, then acting like, you know, she's hot shit and that she's so great. And, oh, I'll help you out when she's ripping off someone like this black woman. I, I think that we're, merits a lot of criticism. Yeah. And they're like, oh my God. And the line of like, don't send me away and all that stuff with it. It's, it's not right. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, you can really see the white 
voices coming through here who probably have their own stereotypes and biases that maybe they didn't acknowledge when this was written. But again, you have like two phenomenal black actresses there. And it's like, I wish that, you know, I, I just wish that people would have been consulted or asked on things. It's like when, um, you know, Rita Moreno was in West Side Story, just check in with people how they're feeling at the very least about these roles. That's just weird because honestly, after that point, you just don't, they don't focus on Delilah at all. Really, yeah. After that point, which pisses me off, but it's fine. No, no it's not fine. It's, it's not no, okay. You're right. It's not fine. That's, <laughs> that is response and I it, I should not say that because it's not fine and it's annoying I'm gonna be a thousand percent honest and I'm not just saying this I mean this genuinely with my whole heart okay. Delilah and Piola's storyline was like 1100% more interesting than that <laughs> than the ichthyologist yeah so I want to focus on the the story of the black characters. Um, so they, you know, time passes. Now there's this giant pancake empire. They're using Delilah's image. They put Aunt Delilah on there. Why? I don't know, other than to just be racist because there's because that's what they do. Laden term. So then we get grown up Piola. And I just I think that. And then it's around this time when she says the the, the line of, uh, like, I want to be white. And I just, I keep going back to what Freddie Washington said about, like, eh, like, that was an uncomfortable thing to say. And with a modern viewer, you know, and again, this is from a white standpoint, I think it... <laughs> I think the intention is supposed to be highlighting the lack of opportunity and rights afforded to her as black woman and the presence of white privilege. But from the writing of a 1930s white woman novelist and white man screenwriter, uh, the wording <laughs> places the white identity as better versus dismantling a harmful societal structure. That would have been difficult to say. It would have been difficult to say that line. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that would not be fun. I just, yeah, I wish that could have been rewritten maybe with her input. And again, I, I don't think it, I maybe get maybe an intention there. But again, like I said, I don't think it captured what it maybe was meant to. Like when I hear from my friends of mixed race or acquaintances of mixed race or people in the media um, and hearing them talking about not fitting into white groups or not fitting into black groups, maybe that was the intention behind that line. Um, but it came out very much like promoting whiteness, which isn't right. No. Ah. So yeah, you get to see the life of Delilah and B, and they're they I mean, they live in this giant house together, built on the foundation of this black woman's family's recipe. But they're not equals. You still see unevenness. Uh, like she's still rubbing her feet. I think. Yeah, she is. The whole movie. The scene where okay, so this is actually um, I can't remember I probably should have put like a timestamp on it, but you'll know the scene when you see it. There's a scene when B is going upstairs into the light and then Delilah is going downstairs into the shadows. That's a very highly referenced visual scene displaying the inequality there. 
that, you know, Delilah is living in a basement still. And then B is ascending higher and higher. And you don't see this like women arm in arm going up the ladder together. You see this suppression just through that image alone. That was really good. It was a very, very good shot. And it really stood out to me. That was, I mean, that was the best part. Not the best part. That was just the part of the film that really stood out to me the most. Just because Beatrice would be nowhere without Delilah. She would be selling maple syrup or whatever she was selling. She should be walking around all day selling maple syrup. But because of Delilah coming to knock on her door to see if she needed help, she's now living in a mansion. 100%. Here's where I get confused when I try looking at the filmmakers behind this production. I think that that scene and that imagery was very intentional. I Oh, yeah. How could it not with, you know, the staircase and the shadows and all that? But then I look at the dialogue and the actual characterization that was written into this. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, it's so, you know, like degrading. Uh, like you could have written her as an equal and then shown how society made them unequal. I I wish I, I, I want to give them the credit. I really do. <laughs> I want to say that they did that shot intentionally, but it really feels like they didn't. And it just so happened to show the inequality in this movie. So I'm going to not give them the credit because I, <laughs> I, I believe that it's not, it's not due for them. It's not. I'm just, giving credit where credit's due and it's not due there. So I don't know how something can so artistically capture something and yet everything else doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> so whatever. Here's another issue I had in the movie. So Steve, the ichthyologist, comes on the scene. Oh, Steven. Steven, Steven. I'm one. so stupid. Steven. <laughs> so, and then, you know, they have their girl talk after the party, whatever. I was like, oh, Steven, the ichthyology. Now, I freaking can't with B. I freaking can't because B isn't getting her feet rubbed or whatever. And then she puts purposely purposely you can see it in her face you can see it in that, that bitchy little smirk when she talks about steve being an ichthyologist she knows that delilah doesn't know what that means like she oh, knows she yeah. doesn't she oh, yeah. like purposely puts her in a situation that's embarrassing which is just not vibes as the kids say it is not vibes. It's not cool. I am a huge Beatrice hater. I, I am here for the Beatrice slander. She. Yeah. Mm. No, there's there were... so many words I want to call her, but I know I can't on this podcast. But the, oh, we'll, put, we'll put the explicit language up morning. It's fine. Call her whatever. Oh, okay. Yeah. She's a fucking bitch. <laughs> She's a cold, calculated fucking bitch. She knows exactly what the fuck she's doing. She does. No. Yeah, she's racist. She's racist. She, she thinks is. she's all progressive. She she's not. She's racist. No. Um, like, okay, so that scene when, when Beatrice did that, it reminded me of this documentary I watched. And I am so pissed because I cannot think of the name of it for the life of me. But if you know what I'm talking about, please, someone let me know because it's just <laughs> escaping me. But in this documentary, there's a scene of a woman who's of lower SES background, 
and she's interviewing for a server position at a really, really nice restaurant. And they ask her if she knows what capers are and she doesn't. And you just like see the painful embarrassment she has when that happens, but that's not her fault. Like she's just in it, you know, she wasn't raised with that vocabulary or knowledge. Like what is that actually? So capers, it's kind of like an herbal flowery, I couldn't even tell you what capers are. They're this little like herby floral wow thing. I have never seen those before in my life. Here, I'll use myself. I didn't know what capers were until watching the Food Network. You know, maybe not ordinarily, I wouldn't know. But yeah, anyway, back to the capers. Like, and in that scene in both the documentary and in this movie, you just see these people in power reinforcing their power to keep someone below them it's not women helping other women rise up that's literally that that is all we can do as human beings is if someone doesn't understand something or understand what something is you shouldn't shame them for not knowing right try to help them learn what it is in a way that's not judgmental because not everyone is going to know what you know like you and I grew up together. I don't yeah. know what capers are. And you just educated me. I don't know how hard it would have been to have just said, he's an ichthyologist. He studies fish. Or, or just, he studies fish. I, I don't know. Three words. That's three <laughs> words. It doesn't take that long. She gave you her family's recipe and gave you yeah. hundreds of thousands of, and millions of dollars. And you won't tell for that the Hawkeye at the party studies fish. Yeah, fish scientist. Two words yeah. if you need it. Uh, um, yeah, and then there's more issues with Piola. The school thing is brought up. I will say I was really caught off, not caught off guard, but surprised when Piola says the line, don't say mammy. Wow, that caught me by such surprise because I feel like that was the first time I saw in a movie someone object to that word. Um, yeah. And it was even cooler, a Black woman saying it. I just thought that that was interesting and I liked it. I also liked that. That was also good. And again, I just think Piola is so interesting. I, I, I honestly, I can't even imagine being in that position with colorism and segregation from Piola's point of view. And I know we get the hammered down conflict between her and the mom, but I, I want to know more. And I yeah. wish that they had shown more sides to her than this internalized patriarchy. That's why I like, I <laughs> will get into it. I like the expansions in the fifties version, but more on that later. Yes. So we don't just see Piola. We get the other daughter, Jesse all grown up. And she's a little princess, isn't she? She is a little princess. (laughs) And then here's what really pissed me off back to this ichthyologist thing. (laughs) You know, she's talking to her mom, B. And B is all, he is an ichthyologist. Do you know what that is? Do you see how different that was than when she was discussing with Delilah? With Delilah, she was so degrading. And then with her daughter, Jessie, who's white, she's all like, do you know what that is? Like she checks in, she asks her, Jessie says she does know what that is. 
And she just takes Jesse's word for it. But in reality, Jesse didn't know, and she needed to Wikipedia that stuff as soon as she left the room. So here we are, two women, a black woman and a white woman. Neither of them know what an ichthyologist is, but the black woman is treated in such a condescending way. And then with the white woman, it's just like, Oh, of course. Like you're educated, you're in school. You know what an ichthyologist is. That's okay, Jesse. Oh, no. Oh, so it's fine if Jesse doesn't know what an ichthyologist is. So I was particularly pissed off at that parallel. And I like again, I just I want to know. I I just I want to know what what was intentional here. Like you know, the, the, the inequality that we're seeing. I, I just want to check in with the filmmakers. Was that intentional? Like I, were the filmmakers racist? I want to know. I, I, know. I just, I'm so confused because I see these direct parallels of inequality. And yet I don't understand how you could write this character in such a stereotyped degrading way. Like you're reinforcing the exact message you're trying to <laughs> highlight. I feel like I feel like they wouldn't have made Stephen an ichthyologist if it wasn't going to play a role. I feel like maybe, right? They just make him a, like a lawyer or something if it didn't care. But I feel like they did want to show some sort of difference between how she would treat different people when it comes to that. I don't know. Um, we get, you know, another heartbreaking scene issue. We find Piola at the segregated restaurant serving white customers, denying her own mother and disowning her because of her color. It's such a loaded scene. And again, more internalized patriarchy. I think we have internalized patriarchy in all of us, but I think it's kind of jarring to see this character to basically make that all that this character is, is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. Because I think there's more to her. And I just, I think that that issue would be really interesting to have explored more with a black actress in the role. Anyway, I, I think that I was looking for more fleshed out dimension from Delilah pushing back and it does happen a little bit. And so that to me was actually one of the most interesting parts of this movie, the two black characters having this dialogue discussing race and identity that happens after the restaurant scene. I also, um, you know, it would not have been comfortable or pleasant to watch, but from a storytelling point of view, maybe prompting emotional responses, I think it would have been interesting if Piola was in a situation where she pretended B was her mother and then seeing what that would have brought out between Delilah and B. That would have been interesting. That's also what I was thinking was going to happen eventually, and it, and it didn't. But I, uh, I think that just would have broken my heart if I saw that happen. I don't think I could have emotionally handled that. So it like it's just it's just so stupid to look at the parallels between. I mean, the, between the mothers and the daughter, like the mother daughter issues. You mm. know, Delilah and Piola, they have systematic oppression as a driving force between them. And then for B and Jesse, it's so shallow. It's, you know, a very uneven love triangle going on. It's literally about a, a man. It's some ichthyologist guy. <sighs> so, yikes. Oh, oh another, I, I guess I should have mentioned this at the very beginning. I'll mention it more with the 50s version. But 
both this and the 50s version are in the form of what's called a melodrama. So exaggerated <laughs> performances, characters, storylines and stuff. You see it particularly come out and I feel bad saying this, <laughs> but you see it like particularly come out when it's super traumatic. And to me, it was a little unintentionally funny when Delilah is all like, my heart's broken. Now I shall die. <laughs> like talking about her <laughs> funeral wishes. Yeah. It, it just comes out of nowhere. Like she looks character literally dies of a, a broken heart. Yeah, I was gonna say, did they? I, I thought maybe I missed it when they said what she was dying from. No, no, I think in this one it was a broken heart. They do a better job in the 50s, which we'll touch upon. Um, no, I missed it in both. So I I mean I because I, I watched the I obviously watched the 34 version first. And they didn't address it. So I was like, oh, she just died of a broken heart. Okay. So I guess I kind of just assumed they would do the same thing for 59. But I guess we'll we'll talk more about that later. I mean, I do think the trauma that the patriarchy causes for whatever your identity may be does take a toll on you physically. Your body does keep score. So I guess I'll give it that maybe if I'm... if you're trying to find realistic points or something, but it's a melodrama. It's whatever. It's fun, but not fun. It's like a soap opera. Um, I wish we could have seen more race acknowledgement from B or an opinion from her or anything. Like she just, she gave us nothing. Yeah. She makes it all about her when opening up and having dialogue with Delilah. It's just one-sided, a one-sided conversation. I think I see a little bit of that in the 50s version as well. Don't get me wrong. But in this one, I think it's more frustrating <laughs> or at least more obvious. <laughs> um, <laughs> Delilah's on her deathbed. And I don't know. You're, you're trying to take in what Delilah has to say. But don't you think you would? I don't know. I don't know. I just think I would have tried to, you know, this friend gave you everything in life. And she just, I don't think her actions really reflected gratitude. It felt like using. Yeah, she was not grateful at all. (sighs) So the funeral scene. I actually, I think this is another cool part of the movie. You see a lot of Black individuals from the community in attendance. And I think that that representation is important to see that life experience in the Black community shown on screen. That's very important. We all go through death. That that one's going to get all of us. That's important. That's groundbreaking to show on screen. I can't think of anything else like that off the top of my head from a prominent studio. For sure, Oscar Michaud um, and other independent trailblazers, they, they did a lot of work, obviously, showcasing the Black community's experience, but not from, you know, the, the big production companies, like the main game game makers game makers yeah that's right <laughs> play the not the big playmakers here uh like universal and the like so i think that's really huge but oh my god again we get this more melodrama with piola running to the casket and trying to make amends and apologizing to her mother now this is different from the book and they changed this in both versions of the movie in the book she does not return to make amends or reconcile or yeah, show remorse in the book. She just pieces out. So 
you know, I mean, again, I'm a white woman saying this. I think that that change is cool to me because I think you see at least conflict with this character. She's not totally rejecting that part of herself. I think you see the internal battle she goes through from that act. I don't know if I said that you know, no, the way I no. meant. <laughs> I, I think that's me right. I think she's like, she's remorseful of not accepting Delilah as her mother, of just not accepting that this is her life and this is just the reality of it. Right. So I think that at least in the movie, they did a good job of showing that with her coming back for the funeral, just that sort of regret and maybe not accepting that. I don't know. Right. And then, you know, the ending is on B and uh, Jesse's story. Everyone's favorite character. <laughs> the, the most important storyline of the whole movie. Them uh, coming to acceptance <laughs> over the sa- over being in love with the same man. It just, it's just so, B and Jesse's storyline just doesn't hold nearly the same weight as the very heavy emotional storyline about race and segregation going on with Delilah and Piola. So it's weird when, because I do think that this does mostly focus on the white women characters in their storyline, but I was much more captivated by the black characters. Yeah. I truly couldn't care less about Beatrice <laughs> or Jesse or Stephen. I could not care less. Whereas Delilah and Piola, they were both going through very, very real problems that are still pretty prevalent to this day. And then, and they basically their whole story was just put kind of on the back burner. So we could see this weird love triangle. Yeah. Just Jesse and Steven. I just was not down with the ending. Both mothers give something up. However, the, the black woman gives up her life. She gives up, you know a mother-daughter title uh where's the white woman's just like oh I'll put my romance on the back burner until yeah, you get over your crush in love with someone else so it, it feels very uneven and I yeah at the end it was just kind of like I I wish that it had ended with the funeral honestly I didn't like her. and I get Claudette Colbert's your big star She's, you know, on loan. You're making this about her. I just truthfully felt more invested in Delilah and Pula's story. Um, a couple other pluses and minuses, I guess, wrap up thoughts. I wish there was more dialogue and more afterthought from Piola's point of view after the funeral, instead of just like, I'm going to go to school now. I just wish we had gotten to know her better. I wish that they, I think Freddie Washington did a great job. I wish that they had shown her better. I think Louise Beavers did an incredible job. I think her acting was phenomenal, but I was really captivated by both of them. I, I don't like B. I will give her the prop that she's enterprising. She's ambitious, a lot of slithering energy. However, it just, she's selfish to me. And I think she's racist. And I think that she thinks she's doing great out there in the world. But I think that she still likes the power she holds. I'm sorry. There, I said it. 
you don't have to apologize. I'm right there <laughs> on board with you. And I just, I, I don't like her. I, I mean, they basically killed Delilah off, who is the one nice person in this movie. Uh, and I, I was just thoroughly disappointed. I, I'm gonna, I hate to say it. I, I was disappointed in a lot of the choices made in this movie. I think they had a lot of great shots that I don't know if they were intentional. (laughs) A lot of great shots and lines, but you know, I don't know. But I just, I feel like when I compare it to the 1959 version, there's things I like, there's things I don't like. What were your, I guess, what were to you maybe the, the pluses, the positives that this movie had going for it? So I feel like maybe a positive for me was was showing the two women going into business together. Though, mm-hmm. yes, it was 100% not equal at all. Right. But I feel like compared to the 1959 version, it feels like they're, it, it doesn't really make sense why the women are so tied together for me whereas in this one it makes sense to me because Mm. they're forced to be tied together Mm -hmm. uh even granted it's in a very racist way so I just I but I do find that to make this movie a little bit have a little bit more dimension to me yeah I I admire the hustler energy that B brings to the table I don't admire her hustling a black woman no no, she could like hustle her daughter or see them. <laughs> and that'd be fine. <laughs> uh, my other plus for this, um, I mean, Louise Beavers, I thought really was great. But yeah, I think to me, Freddie Washington, having her a black actress being cast in that role. I think that that's really unusual and, you know, set this precedent, go against the grain of whitewashing. Um, so I think that that was a really cool element. The story isn't perfect. It's far from the best showcasing of Black storytelling. But it is a story bringing up emotions and experiences of two Black women at the forefront. I would be interested to see how someone would maybe recreate this movie from the 2022 perspective but Mm -hmm. still set during that time I would be interested to see what they would do with that yeah absolutely maybe after the 50s one we'll kind of give our 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 pointers for anyone trying to remake this (laughs) all right so there are some of our thoughts on the 30s version we'll probably mention it more as we move on to 1959 here we are imitation of life 1959. Let's go over the stats. Directed by Douglas Sirk. Okay. Douglas Sirk. Let's talk about him a little bit. He's very famous for his Hollywood melodramas of the 1950s, including All That Happened Allows. He originally lived in Germany, but then left for the States in 1937 because of his own political beliefs and for the safety of his Jewish wife. Remember, we discussed the atrocities of Nazi Germany at this time during our Hunchback of Notre Dame episode. Yeah, again, very prevalent. This is a guy who has seen oppression. I believe his first wife actually was a Nazi. Legally, uh, didn't have to let him see their child because he married a Jewish woman. Wow. Yeah. Really horrible. Yeah. And at the time when he was working as a director in the States, 
his films were criticized because they revolved around quote unquote women's issues and home life issues and things of that nature. (laughs) Travesty. Women having problems? How dare they? But he's also known for use of exaggeration and the storytelling and characters, the bright colors. That's definitely a trademark of his bright colors. Um, So while they were critiqued at the time, as time passed, they became more and more revered. And a lot of people see his works as really works of art. Uh, So unfortunately, he did retire from filmmaking after making Imitation of Life and moved back to Europe. So the screenplay was by Eleanor Griffin and Alan Scott, again, based off of Imitation of Life by Fanny Hurst. Uh, And this is also a Universal Pictures production. And this one runs at 125 minutes. So, and, and it was a huge success, a budget of 1.2 million, uh, box office of 6.4 million. So big, big return. This also received some accolades from the Academy Awards, both in the best supporting actress category for Juanita Moore, who played Annie, and Susan Coner, who played Sarah Jane. So neither of them won, but they were both nominated. So that in this film, you are now seeing uh, recognition for one black actress and one non-black actress playing a black role. But yeah, on that note, let's go into the cast. I, I'm fascinated with some of the real life stuff that was going on here, particularly with Lana Turner, who plays Florida Meredith. Lana Turner. Hollywood icon, a big figure in old Hollywood. In her real life, around the time of filming this, she was dealing with drama with her own daughter. Are you familiar with the story? I am not. Oh, buckle up. Okay. Lana Turner had been romantically involved with a mobster named Johnny Stampanato. Now, he was very abusive to her both physically and emotionally. Uh, He would drug her and he would take naked pictures of her and he would have that as leverage as blackmail against her uh, and staying with him. He showed up with a gun one time while she was on set and threatened her and Sean Connery. Sean Connery uh, stopped it. He took the gun. Naturally. (laughs) Uh, But when things really started boiling up, was Lana Turner attended one of the Academy Awards ceremonies without him. And then he assaulted her when she got home because she didn't take him with her. So then eight days later, Johnny Stampanato comes over to Lana Turner's house again, and then he threatens to kill her and her 14-year-old daughter, Cheryl, and Lana Turner's mother. So Turner tried breaking things off. She was trying to like, you know, de-escalate the situation. Her daughter, her 14-year-old daughter, Cheryl, is in the next room listening to this, hearing that he's threatening to kill her and the mom and the family. Cheryl grabs a kitchen knife and goes into the room and stabs Johnny stopping out of death. The 14-year-old oh daughter. My, oh my God, that is epic. <laughs> what a girl boss. She kind of girl bossed a little too close to the sun. so then you can imagine this is a big hollywood starlet's daughter 
that just killed someone. So the court case for the daughter was a huge media sensation. Like it, it had a lot of coverage. It was a huge scandal. Uh, the daughter was exonerated, deeming it justifiable homicide. That's but- my girl. That's awesome. <laughs> you can only imagine what that would have been like having that go on in your real life and then having this go on in this, like having to act in this movie and then to all like, and then has to have the movie story not even come close to a 10th of the, the drama of your real life. I, yeah, but wow. apparently, you know, it's noted that Lana Turner did channel that rift going on between her and her daughter because it threatened her career. A lot of people were like, you know, not going to work with Lana Turner because her daughter did this, even though this was totally a misogynistic male at the heart and whatever, not whatever, you know what I mean though. I won't ramble. Um, but she implemented a lot of those feelings and conflicts into her portrayal in this film. Wow. That is, <laughs> that is ice. That is awesome. <laughs> I, I have major respect for her daughter. She did what had to be done. This guy was going to he was just going to keep threatening to kill them all. And she just up and did something about it. Ugh. As a 14-year-old girl. I could only hope when I was 14 to be able to do something like that. It's 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 um, definitely a Hollywood story that I think uh, a lot of people have expressed interest in over the years. But yes, so Lana Turner's real life, real mother-daughter issues. And then we have the character Annie Johnson, who is the... Delilah equivalent. And Annie Johnson is played by Juanita Moore. Uh, So a little bit on Juanita Moore because she is the only major cast member that is black in this film. She is originally from Mississippi before her family moved to Los Angeles. And she actually started as a chorus girl herself and an extra before getting supporting roles in the late thirties through the fifties. And then she became, with this movie, she became the fifth Black actor to be nominated for an Academy Award in any category, and the third Black actress nominated in the Best Supporting Actress category. Wow. And if you think that Juanita Moore looks a little familiar, you might recognize her from the Disney movie The Kid with Bruce Willis from 2000. I recognized her, but not from that. (laughs) (laughs) But that is great to know. Uh, and much like the 30s version, there's some other inequity going on with the billing situation. She had the second largest role in the film. I, she's on screen maybe even more than her 1934 equivalent. But Juanita Moore was built seventh behind actors with like very little lines. The, you know, the compromise here maybe is that she's billed as presenting Juanita Moore as Annie Johnson, which is kind of like a highlight of a newcomer on the, on the scene that you want to call attention to. But I think she just straight up deserved top billing. (laughs) I, I do. I mean, yeah. And that wasn't shown in the trailers or advertisement. The like her name wasn't prominent. Oh, how convenient for for this movie. How convenient. Yep. Uh, Pearl Bailey was also considered for this role. We've uh, seen her work before in Carmen Jones. So another very talented black actress of the old Hollywood days. We have John Gavin as Steve Archer. 
Now, of course, we have seen John Gavin before as Sam in Hitchcock Psycho. I think this is kind of why I want to focus on him for just a smidgen. I think it is interesting that John Gavin was born Juan Vincent Apablasa, and he was of Chilean and Mexican descent. So his birth name is Juan. When his parents divorced and his mom remarried, his name was changed to John from Juan. So you look at this guy and his identity was infringed upon, this anglicizing of him. So I just, I think that that is interesting to note in terms of this story of this woman and her identity and the societal issues at the time. Okay, but back to John Kevin. I've mentioned it before, I think, in the Psycho podcast, but he was the U.S. ambassador to Mexico, and he was a cultural advisor to the OAS. Uh, And then we have Sandra D. as Susie, age 16. Sandra D., famous teen star, ingenue. One is probably familiar with her name from the Look at Me, I'm Sandra D. song from Greece. This is her. This This is the Sandra D. That is also what I thought when I first looked up the cast. I was like, Sandra D? That's her? Really? <laughs> uh, and not only that, but we get Troy Donahue playing Frankie in this movie. He is also mentioned in that song. I'm a, as for you, Troy Donahue, I know what you want to do. Oh, my. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're a fan of wow. Greece, you see them both in action here. <laughs> if you've ever been curious. Well, Troy Donahue certainly has a role in this movie. I wouldn't say it's the most flattering. (laughs) Certainly not a flattering role, but, you know, he stood out in his scene, didn't he? Someone has to display perils of toxic masculinity, I guess, maybe, for (laughs) learning sake. quite a bit in this one, though. So they they have a lot of roles to fill for that. Uh, We also have Susan Conner as Sarah Jane, age 18, singing voice dubbed by Joanne Greer. Okay. So Susan Conner was not black. She is of Mexican, European, and Jewish descent. A lot of white actresses were looked at for this role, including Natalie Wood, who, but again, we saw them using her with whitewashing in West Side Story. Uh, so we see again, she, you know, is considered for more non-white roles. Uh, and then Margaret O'Brien, who was Little Tootie in Meet Me in St. Louis. She was also screened for this, which is, you know, I, I, I think that would have been a really poor choice based. <laughs> like, I would have been. I mean, she's pretty white. So <laughs> um, she is. She's quite white. Yeah. Yeah. So Susan Conner is not black. Um, but something that you might find of interest about Susan Conner, her sons, are Paul Weitz and Chris Weitz. And Chris Weitz uh, directed the Twilight Saga's New Moon movie, and he co-wrote the Star Wars Universe movie Rogue One. Whoa. There you go. That is quite the family. Uh, Yes. Yeah. Uh, We also have Robert Alda as Alan Loomis. Uh, We have Dan O'Hurley as David Edwards. Um, Yeah. Oh, and, oh my God, how could I forget? We have the magnificent Mahalia Jackson as the choir soloist at the funeral. And that is a show-stopping performance. It is, you know, singing, but it just phenomenal. Bone chilling. I loved Amazing. it. It was fantastic. 
But again, we'll return to her. Background on the 50s version. A lot of key changes were made to adapt to the times. Uh, like we've discussed, the civil rights movement is now really rooting down in the 1950s. Yes, there's absolutely been changes in progress prior to that. But in the 50s, you see a lot of pushes in terms of legislation and movement. For example, we have Brown versus the Board of Education taking place in 1954. Emmett Till is murdered in 1955, and his murderers were acquitted, his white murderers. Rosa Parks protests in the Montgomery bus boycott starts in 1955. In 1957, we have the Little Rock Nine. They're given federal protection to integrate into a white school. A lot of violence shown towards them. Martin Luther King Jr. is leading protests against discrimination. Also, time consideration-wise, the production code is nearly on the verge of becoming defunct. It's just not really factoring into consideration as much anymore. It exists, but it, like, it's just not as big of a thing. So a lot going on. And Cirque and the screenwriters recognize some of the problematic <laughs> stereotypical messages from the first adaptation of this movie that just didn't serve the story nor the audiences of the time. So instead of the two moms going into business together, and by that I mean one taking advantage of the other, they instead have Laura as like a actress Broadway star and Annie as her daughter's nanny. Pluses and minuses. Um, you gain some things, you lose some things. So Laura, the white bee equivalent, has her own talents and does not rip off a Black woman's work and pass it off as her own franchise. Uh, she does have, you know, her own aspirations and talents in the acting category. It's just that quality, I guess, that, you know, that business building factor is just not there. And I think that that is something cool to showcase in a woman's ability. However, with this change also, the, ne the other negative is that I feel you're kind of pigeonholing Annie, the Delilah equivalent, the black woman equivalent into just a caretaker role. Whereas yeah. in the thirties version, I feel like, you know, it was very evident the the talents that Delilah had and, and, it, and Hey, no child caretaking is absolutely a talent and an ability, but it did show her something beyond that stereotype mammy um, caricature. And I think that you lose that a little bit here, but you also gain a lot more well-rounded of a personality and character. But again, I digress. We'll, we'll talk more later. <laughs> it's complicated. It's a complicated, complicated. thing. It's complicated. Uh, also, it's not strange, but just, and again, it's a melodrama. This is very soap opera-y. Laura dresses very lavishly. Uh, I think that the wardrobe and jewelry for Lana Turner cost over a million dollars. And I mean, I will say I was obsessed with the one silver dress that she wore uh, after the play. Like, I, 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 I wanted that so bad. <laughs> I said out loud to Ben that I was obsessed with that dress. Me too. Me too. So <laughs> if anyone out there is connected to archival costumes or anything of that nature. You know, I, I, I don't want to try it on or anything. I just want to see it in person. <laughs> if anyone has the hookup, let me know. I would like to try it on. I don't think it's <laughs> me, but I would like to try it on. 
It's, How much it, look as you'd like. <laughs> it's beautiful. Oh gosh. Okay. One thing I also disliked in this movie uh, in terms of change was not casting a black actress for Sarah Jane slash the Piola equivalent. It was really, really distracting for me. Um, You know, whitewashing is still an issue that we have in the present day. And so, you know, it doesn't surprise me that this was kind of backtracked a little bit back then after 1934. I wish that we could have had that, you know, identity accurately represented in this role, because I think that it just inauthenticates it a little bit. I'm sorry. No, I, I think Freddie Washington, granted her character was different from Piola, but she still had those life experiences to right. come to the decision that she made eventually as an adult as Freddie Washington. Right. So I feel like she was able to portray her character in a way that she could potentially view other people. Anyone else. Other yeah. People, I feel like. Whereas I feel like for Susan Conner? Yes. Susan Conner as Sarah Jane. I feel like she just wasn't able to necessarily maybe do it the same justice that Freddie Washington was. Yeah. And, and I mean, I'm in given like she definitely has, you know, her her own identities that maybe she oh, like yeah. we could we could we hey, we all have target identities that we can tap into. Um, so I, I'm sure she did. It's just, I think particularly whitewashing a role that really only focuses on racial identity. I think that that that's just, it's strange to me. It's like that. It is odd. It is quite odd. That's like her character's main issue. Um, a stupid critique I have of this movie is it's a lot of S names. Susie, Sarah Jane, Steve. I, I don't know why. It was just not fun for my brain. Does anyone else see names when they hear names? Like you see it written out? Yes. So I do. And I was just seeing S's everywhere. Well, it definitely didn't help that Steve goes by Steve in 1959, whereas in the 34 version, he goes by Steven. Yeah. So I was dealing in my brain with Susie, Sarah Jane, Steve, and Steven. Right, and exactly. Could, my brain was completely scrambled. So I had to write all of their names out so I could actually keep track. No, I'm right there with you. It's uh, the S's, they're challenging. <laughs> I mean, uh, all my friends have C names, all of them. So it's very hard for me to keep track of that in person and let alone a movie that I'm watching for two hours and five minutes. Ah, good stuff. Good stuff. Well, I guess those are some of the, you know, pros and cons, the good changes and the bad changes. I guess let's get into the rewatch because I feel like we've got a lot to say on this one. We, we do. We do. I feel like this movie has, in sense, bad to say it feels like it has a lot more substance i feel like a lot more happens and the oh, yeah. in, like intimate details oh yeah i think uh i i don't want to speak for the entire general public here i think generally speaking from people i've talked to or things i've read i get a general consensus that this movie is preferred i prefer it um for the most part again i think my that my biggest issue is them not casting a black actress for um, Sarah Jane. 
but there are a lot of things I prefer stylistically in this one too. So speaking of style, this one is very much in the style of the 1950s and the late 1950s specifically, like, you know, the glamour, the color, and very much, you know, Cirque style. But I, I think that you get this sweeping epicness in a lot of late 50s movies. I like how their initial meeting is on the basis of their daughters playing together. I like that it's not this black woman looking for work from a white woman. I, I, you know, you bring together this like commonality of the daughters just being kids, you know, having fun. That was nice. It is similar in both movies when you hear the surprise that Sarah Jane slash Piola is Annie slash Delilah's daughter. Uh, But I wonder if you notice this yourself. I think it's very interesting in how both films, when the surprise is expressed, that the Black mother says that the dad was very light-skinned and, quote-unquote, practically white. They don't mm-hmm. say anything about the dad being white. And I think that there's still that, you know, subscription to for the newer movie, the production code as well, but also that kind of racist, ideology against mixing race i was curious about that I, w- I was very very curious about that and that does clear that up at least for me in my head yeah i think that if this were to be remade today in 2022 i think it would be really interesting to straight out say that the father was white maybe yeah because did they say the father died or you know i can't remember slept? yeah i can't remember but I would be interested to explore that backstory more instead of yeah, just the white women's. Too. Still a similar vibe, unfortunately. I know that they are trying to make it progressive, but still a similar vibe with the, you know, oh, I'll work real cheap and all of that. I, yeah. Yeah. No, it was the same thing. It was just this, yeah. Yeah. yeah it was just the whole, like, I'm happy to work for, room and board and that's it I don't I, I eat like a bird I don't need to eat anything at all it just it's hard to watch it's yeah and like if given I the uh Laura is struggling financially and is open about that but more on that later more more comments on that in other scenes but um Here's where I, I, this was like, again, a, a noteworthy scene to me. So Laura has Annie and uh, Sarah Jane come back and stay with her. And the girls are playing together. And you see Sarah Jane rejecting the black doll. Let me give a, like a, a, an acknowledgement to Laura. I admire that Laura Meredith would get her doll of a different race than her own daughter. I think that that is pretty cool for a white woman in 1959 to get her white daughter a black doll. But I couldn't help but wonder if this scene was inspired by the famous psychologists, doctors Kenneth and Mammy Clark's doll test study in the 1940s to research the psychological effects of segregation. And in this study, they gave both black dolls and white dolls to black children between the ages of three and seven. And they asked the children which doll they prefer. 
uh, the majority of the black children said that they preferred the white dolls and assigned positive traits that were like nice and good uh, to the white doll. And for the black dolls, they would say that they were bad. And then they would say that they liked playing with the white dolls better. One of the other questions they would ask is, which doll is most like you? And they found that a lot of the kids would get really emotionally upset identifying with the black doll. So big conclusion to this study was that living in a race segregated society does negatively impact how black children see themselves. And this study happened 14 years before Brown versus the Board of Education, but was actually used as, um, I think, supporting evidence in that court case. So if you're rolling your eyes and thinking, oh, this is dumb, that's like so forced or whatever. I mean, there was evidence that if you lived this experience in that time, that would have been a very real, you know, maybe emotional response for a girl like Sarah Jane in the 1940s. But also look at what Susie's ingraining in her mind as well as a white girl of like, like she's not wanting to play with the black doll either. Mm -hmm. Did you also think of that study? I also thought of that study. So I'm glad that you brought it up. I, I didn't even think about what it could come across to Susie as if I was like a little kid and I only, if I had more dolls and I saw that my friend reacted that poorly to one doll, I guess I would give her a different doll. (laughs) But, uh, but I mean, I different times uh, and different amount of dolls. So I just, I feel like to Susie, that must've been very confusing and probably changed her mind about that doll. And Sarah Jane must've just, I, I, I do feel for her. Cause yeah. I feel like when you're, when you grow up viewing basically your race as being not, not the, not the preferred race. Just based off of that doll study, just, I guess. So the that green study, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's just, it's, I just it's heartbreaking it's really it's really a really sad scene yeah it is sad I I just think it displays the biases the differentiating that kids make at a young age to me I see Susie as like well I'm white I'll have the white doll you're black I'll have the black doll or and or like just having preference for that white doll just based off of societal infrastructure of preference and you know messaging yeah, I mean, kids aren't dumb. They're going to see how adults react to things. They're going to see how adults are treated and then react to them how they feel like they should. So it's just... Yeah, Inter- interesting scene. Interesting it scene is. because I think it has some real-life influence. Because again, Brown versus Board of Education happened in 1954. So that study was like a lot more widely known than by the time this movie came out. Uh, But moving on a little bit, I do think it's interesting that Laura is a little bit more forthright and honest about how she's struggling with money. And I'm not even sold on this. I think she has maybe a little more awareness of her whiteness and Annie's Black identity and maybe what that means. However, there's issues there. Um, You see them both struggling for work, but they still write Annie as a little bit submissive and you know serving but you do see how she maybe was impacted by a racist society in forming her own self-views even if it's a little more subtle I think you see it a little more in this movie I would agree 
I'll try to come up with like a solid concrete evidence. But um, in the 1930s version, it it honestly felt like this white woman relied on the black woman and she just basically used her. In this version, I mean, it, it, there is there is a codependency there. Yes. Um, it feels just slightly more equal footing of true friendship. But there's yeah. I I would I would agree. Like there's still power dynamic for sure. Yes. In the 1930s version, I mean, pretty much like Delilah kind of sacrificed a lot for Beatrice. Not yeah. kind of, she did sacrifice a lot. Yeah. She sacrificed her family recipe. She sacrificed a lot, a lot. Whereas in this, Annie was acting more subservient and like she was a caretaker but she was also definitely kind of friend she's annie in this one seemed like she was actually friends with laura yeah which is not what it was like in the first movie with beatrice and delilah yeah and, i agree and annie seemed to like actually really enjoy watching Susie and sarah jane because she viewed Susie like another daughter yeah i you see this like tribe of women raising their kids together however i mean there's still a sense of a power dynamic i think that you see the black woman constantly checking in on the white woman but you don't see laura checking in on annie as much emotionally about work and life and all of that oh and that's even acknowledged later in the movie not to skip ahead but it is acknowledged (laughs) and i appreciated that uh, and this is not relating to like race at all, but I am obsessed with the dog from the ad. That Laura. <laughs> that dog was adorable. Oh I, I knew you were going to love that dog. I love big dogs, everyone. They're just like my favorite thing ever. The, the bigger, the, the better. <laughs> but yeah. Um, okay. But Steve comes back on. Okay. Well, we meet Steve a little earlier in this. He is not an ichthyologist in this movie, everyone. He is just a <laughs> photographer with a dream, photographer with a camera and a dream trying to sell his ads. So I actually thought that the interactions were interesting there with the dating between Steve and Laura. I kind of admire, um, okay. How do I put this? So Steve asks Laura, like, aren't you a little late to the acting game? But I, I admire Laura's tenacity and her explaining how she got to that point and saving money and how this has always been her dream. And her husband was in the theater and he died and she had to save money to even get to New York. And she has this daughter and she's a single mom. So I, I do think that that's like, I think that ageism is a thing with acting for sure. Mm-hmm. But to have them, you know, say that and to have a woman say, you can go for your dreams at any age. That's cool. That was cool to me. I do wonder what it says though, on us not really checking in on Annie's dreams and like what her long-term, I know that her big goal is to just not be separated from her daughter, but I know that there's more to Annie than that, you know? There definitely is. And they don't address it, which is upsetting. Um, I think the part that maybe pissed me off one of the most <laughs> of this movie how could you not be pissed off when Laura's going in for the interview and she further empowers and legitimizes the patriarchy by calling Annie her maid to improve her own status? <sighs> like, you do yeah. have to look at it. Yes, this woman is of low SCS socioeconomic status. 
and it's affecting her choices, but ultimately it's disempowering a woman of color. Like that, you know, hitting against each other is ultimately hurting this other woman. So it's complex and it just shows how implicit and ingrained these racial biases are and how disgusting it is the hurt that someone would cause to get ahead just in this, you know, male, like, well, we'll get into the agent, but <laughs> this male-dominated world. Um, yeah. Like, the, the, yeah. Okay, no, let's get into it now. The, the agent. Straight up sexist, predatory, just yuck. Disgusting. I hate him. I, he is an unlikable character. And I'm glad he's really not shown too often. No, and I, ooh, like... I feel like this is better explored in different old Hollywood movies. Uh, you know, like you're, you want to be like good for her for leaving that situation. Mm-hmm. But I also can't imagine how hard that would have been to be under the pressure to A, live your dream, B, make money living your dream for your child. So I, yeah, I mean, it's cool to show that. But again, that, that's a lot of, that's a lot of pressure to that would be, a lot. be under circling back to the little girls Mm -hmm. i think the children dynamics between the two girls are real like as kids are really interesting in this version there's a couple examples like what the other kids say at school about blood um Mm -hmm. i think if you're looking at segregation in a racist society and then the curiosity kids naturally have and how they can create messages amongst themselves and that those messages can be harmful it just goes to show like that results from not openly talking about race with your kids. So I think that that's a message we can take home today that kids are going to see differences in each other. And, you know, maybe they're going to be stupid and make up stupid things that are, you know, maybe not intended to be racist, but racist. And then it's, is you as a parent, it, it does a bigger service to have those uncomfortable conversations and answer questions I know it can't be easy I just I know it can't be I'm not a parent won't be for a long time but I just know that that's just something you have to talk about because I mean kids just so look up to their parents and if you are not going to be open to having those conversations then they're not then they're going to turn elsewhere and it's just so important to set a good precedence for the kind of adult that you want to be and you want your kids to turn into one day. So I feel like, yes, definitely in the 1950s, they were not having conversations about this, which is why so many things happened with Sarah Jane. Just out of curiosity, because like you said, they are kids. Kids will do anything just to learn. But man, oh man, it's tough. It's a tough situation. Yeah. On that note, I will say a plus that I think that this movie has going for it that I did not see in the 1930s movies was I really admired Annie talking with her daughter more on being black and how it's nothing to be ashamed of in this movie. Yes. And yeah, the the pain that's going on between them. So another thing that when I was watching young Sarah Jane talk kind of expressing self-hatred, I couldn't help but think of 
another identity in film of LGBTQ plus representation and how around this time period, like the 1950s, there was this self-loathing gay identity being pushed around in films. And I see that similar narrative being pushed in this movie in regards to being black. And it's not until, you know, year a few years later that you're getting messages of black joy in film. You're just focusing on the that trauma message. Um, and it, you see it again with the LGBTQ plus movies. So I want to analyze more why that is. We don't have time to get into it at this moment, but I'm sure with <laughs> more movies we'll dive into it more. But I, I do see that parallel across the board of the 50s bringing up those more... Um, Mm, difficult conversations. It's just a, a trend I see going across a few movies. I really do appreciate the, like you said before, just like basically the conversations that Annie and Sarah Jane were having, even with Laura and Susie kind of in the mix. Mm-hmm. They did not do that in the 1934 version. Mm-hmm. So just the part where she was saying basically that she wants to be white. I mean, when you think of the 1934 version, basically, you just hear Beatrice being like, oh, how could you say such cruel, horrible things to Piola about yeah. being Black, which, granted, that meant something different then. But looking at it in the 1959 version, I just, I really liked that Laura said, it doesn't make any difference to us because we all love you, regarding her wanting to be white rather than Black. and then. And then Annie saying the line, how do you explain to your child that she was born to be hurt? It's just, it's very powerful. Yeah. And it's a huge, huge change, which was really important. Yeah. I think with that, I I agree. I think that there's a huge change. There's things I like and things I don't like. Like, I think that Laura's naivete is really coming out there uh, with, you know, and I, I wish that maybe it could have been two single moms working together, whereas a little bit of it felt like Laura was putting this on Annie, mm-hmm. but like to see a moment of them talk, both of them talking to both of their daughters about race. I just, I think that could have been cool. However, I have to keep in mind that there's still a learning journey going on and it just makes you so grateful for how much people push for advocacy and education to our current day and age. Um, and like, I don't know, you see this, a lot of white feminism from Laura throughout this movie. Another point is, you know, Laura talking about wanting more for her career and then Steve persuading her otherwise. I think he's coming from a place of protection because she was kind of preyed upon. But, I, you know, it's kind of cool because this came out four years before Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique. So mm-hmm. you're already starting to see this precursor to the 1960s, you know, wokeness um, coming out. <laughs> Okay, I have to talk about the Christmas scene. Uh, Okay, first of all, yes, I think that there's still, like I said earlier, that mammy stereotyping going on, like she's caring for the kids and Laura's like trying to advance her career outside the home. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I was really excited that the topic of, Jesus being black or white came up. Yeah. I, I didn't think they were going to go there, but they did. Uh, 
Laura's answer was pitiful to me that Jesus is whatever you want him to be. And then Sarah Jane goes, he was like me, white. I would give anything to see the follow-up to, to what that comment was between these women. And I wish that the writers had the balls to follow through <laughs> with the older woman stating out loud and proud in the 1950s for all of America to hear that Jesus was a man of color. I would have lived for that moment if, if they said that Jesus wasn't white and that he was brown because he was. <laughs> that would have been way too progressive for them in the 1950s. We could dream, but it was never going to happen. But wow, if they had said that, groundbreaking, groundbreaking. Oh, what could have been? <laughs> I think we gotta we gotta invent time travel. Let's get you back, and uh, we'll make you create that line for them. Because I, I would have done it. Yeah. From, you know. <laughs> the audience would not have liked that. Jesus was a brown man, everyone. <laughs> I'll say it for anyone here because it's true. We've just been in the theaters yelling that. <laughs> so, so I don't know who needs that. to hear that, but it's the but truth. If you don't believe if you don't believe that. It's better. It's time to come to terms with that. It just is historically. Ugh. It's accurate. Could you imagine if they like that was a layup to 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 address that in 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 this? They were Ugh. so they were so close. They were so close. I I I was like, oh my god! It was just like the biggest letdown to not see the <laughs> the aftermath of that scene. <laughs> They were not ready for that realness. I was they ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> we're well past ready for that to for that to be what people come to terms with. Mm, okay, I'll be fixated on this forever. But I mean, I actually <laughs> that was probably my favorite part and a disappointing part. <laughs> oh I god, think that's fair. Things are going well for Laura's career. Did you also feel like the director David looked like someone? He did. He I couldn't figure out who. I'm trying to think of who he looked like. I don't know who that. I'm glad you also thought he was familiar. Yeah, looking. he looked familiar. I, in terms of writing, it felt a little tacky to me to have Laura stand up to the casting couch and then have her later on, a couple scenes later, be like, I love you to the director. It was ridiculous. She was just like, I've never felt this way before. Oh, push come on not my fave not my fave but you know I do enjoy how they showed the time passage of the years and her success is growing and stuff you get good exposition-ish stuff there um okay so we're entering into like current day and age 1958 59 I appreciate that they do a little bit more buildup of Annie potentially having an illness like you know, she's kind of weak. She's having spells, maybe like dizzy spells, mm-hmm. issues. <laughs> Sandra D. We see the girls grown up. The song, Look at Me, I'm Sandra D, makes all the sense in the world when you see Sandra D in action as Susie. Like, holy moly. It's 
it's a lot. It, it's like sickeningly sweetness. Give me a toothache. <laughs> Sweet. I've never heard of that saying before. And I love it. <laughs> Give me a toothache. It's so sweet. Yeah. Yeah. She's just, just the angel Susie. Just such an angel. She's like too innocent. There's no chance in hell. <laughs> this girl. Like, how, old, how old was she supposed to be? Was 16. She to be 16, 17, 16? 18. Yeah. 16-ish, 17, 18. No one's that innocent at 16. No I, one. No, I, I don't care if you're Sandra D. <laughs> there's it's just the way she talks like why when's the time to let a boy kiss you there's just no chance that she (laughs) that's you like uh, i don't know it just it it annoys me (laughs) and then we see grown-up sarah jane and i i know like i'm gonna sound like a broken record it's gonna sound like i'm feeding a fed horse here but I'm just so distracted by her not being black. And it just doesn't feel like very compelling or sincere when she talks about her anger and struggles. I, you know? Yeah, it's, it is very distracting. I mean, there's, there's just not much to, not much else for me to say on it, except for, I agree. It was distracting and it made it a little difficult to kind of see where she was coming from. She's a great actress, but yeah, yeah, it makes it more difficult. Right, exactly. I have a question for you. Did anyone okay. else understand the egg comment? <laughs> You're well, all the eggs. They're up to here. Like no. Okay, am I <laughs> stupid? I I looked it up. I I just I could not find an answer. So if anyone wants to educate me for either me being naive or just not understanding of the times please help me because I was a little confused. I didn't know if it was like a reference to breasts. I didn't know if it was a reference to color. I didn't know. I didn't know what that meant. You're all eggs. You're now my eggs are up to here. I, I was so confused. That, yeah, that makes no sense to me. I wish I could give you an answer, but someone please give us an answer because I'm dying of curiosity now. Uh, the picnic scene. Yes. First of all, I think Sarah Jane ran a little too quick to jump up after her mom left the room. <laughs> I thought so too. I, I waited. I would have waited. I mean, she just threw that ice pack right on off and she immediately grabbed her going out clothes. I would have waited until maybe like 30 minutes after. Yep. A respectful amount of time. Yep. 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 Um, you know, Laura reconnects with Steve and she says she hasn't been this happy in years. And then we have Susie asking Annie about kissing. And I think that this is cool because it shows a black woman as a person with desire and sexuality. Were you also going to say that? I was also going to say that. <laughs> like, I know it's subtle. I know it's, you know, the most overt thing, but Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I feel like that would have been cool to see that representation on the screen, turning yeah. to her for that feedback and insight, you know, as a daughter to a mother figure. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, so I think that that's cool. Um, you know, maybe not the most advanced thing ever, but I, I think I think it was cool. But on the flip side, you have 
like Susie is aggressively innocent, <laughs> like unusually innocent. Um, but then they have Sarah Jane, a woman of color, being put into these sneaky, seedy situations later on in kind of like this nightclub. And I just, I don't know. I feel like there's subliminal racist messaging there. Nothing wrong with working as a chorus girl in a nightclub or any of that. I just thought that the contrast between the two girls was just, I, I feel like there was messaging. There, there definitely was. And I mean, I even thought at first I knew there had to be a twist with Sarah Jane eventually like she was gonna go and leave to go to city and do a career kind of just like in the 1934 version but I thought that the twist was gonna start with her actually being into Steve I thought Sarah Jane would be into Steve not Susie because that's how that's how they presented it was just Susie kind of being this oh la di da da I don't have a thought in my head sort of girl Mm. And Sarah Jane was kind of eyeing Steve, which nothing wrong with that. Steve's a good looking guy. I would eye him up. <laughs> who wouldn't? <laughs> but who, who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? I'm not eyeing up Steven from 1934. <laughs> I'm eyeing up Steve from 1959. But I was just surprised when yeah. there was that kind of twist where Sarah Jane wasn't interested. She had a boyfriend. I will say I, I liked the dating element, though, that they brought in a Sarah yes. Jane. And I wish that that could have been there for the 30s version. What a that would have been great in the 1934 version. It was a great addition. <laughs> they weren't there I yet. Say. But I, I think that that was really important to show the, the dating relationship love conflict. Yeah. And like it, I couldn't help. Sorry, everyone. This might be going into a category that we don't have a lot of cross fans with but it reminded me of what michelle said last season on the bachelorette about about not being seen and being picked first for basketball but last for prom like i couldn't help but see that message being shown here through a 1959 movie and yeah i'll reiterate i'm white like i don't know if it's appropriate for me to you know say this about the characters but I am going to critique the writer's storyline. I think that Sarah Jane's frustrations with how people responding to her dating life are super valid, but it is frustrating as a viewer to watch her taking that out on her mother and tearing herself and black men apart. Um, It just like, it's shown as a symptom of the patriarchy. Uh, I wish that they would have evolved the character past falling into that element and more so also like struggling with falling into it and wanting to dismantle the patriarchy. Um, it, Cause it, by this point in time, there's a lot of events going on pertaining to civil rights issues on a national level. And it just, it would have been cool to have that character a little bit more having that as her main struggle versus her and her mom. Yeah. But um yeah, I, I will say I thought it was a little intriguing, Sarah, the the part with Sarah Jane mocking black stereotypes and embarrassing Laura. I like that she calls that out as actual stereotyping and not actual behavior. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that's a step up from 1934. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still it doesn't it didn't make me cringe any less. Uh, I will it, say that. Oh, it was very <laughs> cringe. 
Okay. But in that, her saying Laura doesn't know what it's like to be different. And then Laura giving the most super white feminist naive response of all time of, I don't see color, blah, 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 blah. Like I haven't treated you any different. Mm-hmm. Laura doesn't get it. They weren't there yet. Either the screenwriters or whatever. <laughs> they weren't there yet. <laughs> they were on their way. They were not there yet. <laughs> so yeah, it's like maybe Laura acknowledge how the world has treated her differently. Not just like what goes on in your own home. Mm, yeah, I do. I Another plus that I think the 50s version has going for it is that you see more of an affectionate side between mother and daughter with Annie and Sarah Jane. It's not all, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. It's, it's like, mm-hmm. you see you see a love there. It's just really strained. Yeah, it is. I mean, just Annie's relationship with Sarah Jane and Susie. I mean, it's just so much more prevalent in the uh-huh. 1959 version. You just see Annie talking to them way more than you do in the original. You see her giving emotional, you know, nurturance and that shouldn't fall just on her, but you do see that in that character, I guess, which I I don't think was as well done in the thirties version. No, 100% it was not. Uh, And I mean, Annie was willing to have those conversations, which it didn't seem like Delilah was in the 1934 version. So right. Kudos to them. Yeah. Yeah. It's showing, not telling, you know, that yeah. her, her, her wonderfulness is a mother figure. Yeah. She just, she loves Sarah Jane despite anything, despite her being so resentful. Right. Right. Um, and then we get to meet this God awful racist boyfriend of Sarah Jane and wow, that scene is intense. Like I, I, you hear the n-word spoken which honestly i i can't remember if it was even used in the 30s one um it was not yeah. it was not actually um and then him beating her Violently. that was that was very real violence that against a black woman that i just i think is groundbreaking to show in a 1950s capacity so that very much i think is something that transcends generations of audiences that you can look at today and be very affected by that scene and how this is still an issue in today's society. Yeah, any form of abuse at all is obviously going to cause some sort of emotional reaction from any kind of audience member. And in this case, it being a result of him finding out that she is Black and her Mm -hmm. mom is Black. And that is why he is beating her is horrible. It's horrible. Yeah. And I can only imagine how much even more impact that scene would have made if the actress was black. Yeah. But still that, that was a pretty big scene. Um, But then we're moving on to, you know, this third act of sorts, um, the graduation. So fun behind the scenes fact, the graduation scene is shot at town and country school, which was the school that Lana Turner's daughter, Cheryl attended. There you go. go. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So she was probably familiar with that school in real life. The Susie crush on Steve is painful to watch. 
like pains me. This attraction is very one-sided. It reminds me a little bit of something in Yellow Jackets for anyone who's seen it. By the way, go watch Yellow Jackets. I am obsessed. It's my current favorite show. Or it's it. I haven't been this excited about a show in a long time. So watch Yellow Jackets. And Ouch, Emma, what about Succession? Come on. Honestly, I think I felt a little bit more pulled to Yellow Jackets. I don't know why. I was just, I was into it. Crazy, crazy stuff. I do have to watch it, but yes. Yes, obsessed. Um. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. Then we get a bunch of more heartbreaking scenes. Mother, daughter, Annie trying to get Sarah Jane out of the nightclub. Sarah Jane rejecting her. Just more heartbreak. I like, and I'm trying again. I put, I, I like I said with the 30s when I tried putting myself in the mindset of a white person watching this in the 1950s. And I, I wonder how this would impact my actions and thoughts on race if this was my kind of first or one of my first exposures to black stories. Yeah. It's, you know, the portrayal of Annie isn't perfect, but I think she's very much humanized and fleshed out in here. Mm -hmm. And she's more than just the stereotype. Still stereotyping going on, but I think she's more than that. Mm -hmm. The other club scene, the, the one that's segregated, I thought it was quite powerful to have the guy come up and dismiss her for being Black and tell her to leave, but you don't hear the dialogue. And then, you know, that last final goodbye between Annie and Sarah Jane. (laughs) Again, you just want to scream at Sarah Jane, like, turn that finger around to the white racist people rejecting you. Your mom's not the problem. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know. I just, I mean, (sighs) Annie is just such a good mother and she loves her so much and she just puts up with so much shit. Yeah. Just for Sarah Jane to say she doesn't want Annie to acknowledge her or even be her mother anymore. It's just, how does she not like take a step back and think, this is like the woman that has raised me and it taken care of me and, and who cares? Because I yeah. want to be white. No, she's just, I mean, she's so giving and also opens up more discussion on race and identity and accepting that I think in this version. Um, and ha- it just wrecked me when Annie called Sarah Jane Linda and then denied being her mom to the roommate and subscribed to her daughter's wishes one last time. She's like the giving tree. <laughs> she is like the giving tree. <laughs> and I actually, I'm surprised that Sarah Jane didn't try to pull the move of saying Laura was her mother in this movie it's this this oh, was yeah. more than the 1934 version I definitely yeah. thought that was going to happen but no to see that scene with Annie going through with her daughter's wishes that was heartbreaking it was devastating and I I mean I don't know if you also got this impression but I felt like I could see Sarah Jade break a little yes in her beliefs. Yeah. I I also felt like Sarah Jane felt regret in that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When she said that, uh, she, that Annie had taken care of her all her life. Yeah. That was the moment when she was breaking down, crying on the door. Yeah. That I was like, I think she's finally 
sort of starting to realize that. Yeah, I think she starts looking beyond herself and at the world around her a little bit. Not, you know, a lot, but starting to happen. that That was the first step for Sarah Jane, I think. Yeah, and in this movie as well, I have a huge preference. Uh, th- the story A has shifted more on Annie and Sarah Jane, and I still have a preference towards that storyline. I just think it's a more interesting concept, to be honest. You know, there's still the mother-daughter stuff going on with uh, Laura and Susie. And, you know, not going to lie, I would also probably be quite devastated if I had a crush on John Gavin and I saw my mom <laughs> kissing him. <laughs> That would I get it. hurt my soul as well. <laughs> you know, my feelings would be hurt. I get it. I can't blame her. <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be sad. I'd be in my feels. <laughs> I'd pull a Cassie from Euphoria. <laughs> oh <laughs> no, not a Cassie. <laughs> no, not a Cassie. Not a Cassie. No one should pull a Cassie. No one. No one, should, no no one. ever. No one should ever. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. Um. Going back to linguistics, I want to still call out that Annie uses like the Miss Laura, Mr. Steve titles, whereas the white characters just say people's names without that title. Um, just mm-hmm. a linguistics thing in the script I wanted to note. I liked when Susie talked to Laura and said that Annie was more of a mother to her than her own mother in the career stuff. And, you know, like... Yeah, like, yeah, it's a little, you know, childish, but like also she just straight out said that Annie gave her more of that emotional mothering than her own mother. And of course, Laura just goes into like selfish mom mode, guilt, mom guilt for sure. Mom guilting. (laughs) Yeah. Guilting for sure, which is just toxic. I've been working so hard for you. (laughs) It's all. Uh, like she's making it all about her and it's it's just kind of funny how like parenting mentality in the 1930s it's like oh she'll get over it's a schoolgirl crush and mm-hmm. nowadays in this version it's like that's not even an issue sarah jane's got an issue <laughs> this is stupid <laughs> like i like i like that that's called out well i will say i ben beloved ben he was sort of watching these scenes with me he kind of came in at the end of this movie and even he was noticing this fight between Laura and Susie so he just was like this is stupid why would this be a fight that is not a real problem so uh, I was kind of cracking up where like I get it I, I get where Susie's coming from I think Laura I can't really side with Laura on this. I no, think, I can't side with uh, Laura either. <laughs> no, she's just, just like, yes, it's great that you have aspirations as an adult. Like that you should be able to go through with your aspirations, but don't don't throw that at your kid. Yeah, yes, exactly. Here's the thing. I think that Laura did need to pursue her dreams and do all this to be a good mom. A hundred percent. Absolutely. But don't put that guilt on your kid. Yeah. She's in defensive mode and she's saying everything she can to make herself out to be the victim. Yeah. 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 But um, (laughs) we're kind of coming to the climax here. We get more drama, like more of the melodrama. This one's very melodramatic. Annie dying. 
uh, is there a better way to go out than how Annie went? Like an angel saint, just taking oh. care of everybody, people losing their damn minds that you're dying. <laughs> okay, wait, yes. So before, even the scene before she died, I can't remember if it was like right before, like she said it while she was dying, but is Laura saying like, I didn't know you had so many friends. Yeah, and exactly. You never asked. You never did, Laura. You never asked how she was. You never asked what her life was like. You never asked what her aspirations were. You just cared about yourself. Yep. Yep. I like that that Mm -hmm. was called out (laughs) here. She had to be called out and she was called out, which was really redeeming that for me. Yeah, from the 1934 version that that gave me a little bit of satisfaction huge high note for me uh speaking of high notes that funeral scene all the stops mahalia jackson what a treat she has like this incredible goosebumpy voice was she performing live when they were recording that I'm you know guess, i'm guessing she was i don't know I for be sure surprised. She has such a phenomenal voice and seeing her front and center she was the only one that you she was the only one that you saw Mm -hmm. pretty much singing the entire time she um she has been in some other movies she was in st louis blues i'm pretty sure but it was cool to see her in this space and she's just phenomenal like incredibly amazing to watch that uh again same positives in both this movie and the 30s movie i like that representation of community black community coming together at this funeral i think it's very powerful and i think it's very important for a white audience to watch a scene like that i agree yeah (laughs) The, the ending actually is very similar almost the exact same shot Sarah Jane running through the crowd holding the casket like that casket scene almost the same shot yeah little too late Sarah Jane too little too late (laughs) (laughs) too little too late indeed and her screaming that she killed her mother I will say there's more of a build-up like you kind of see the succumbing coming yes Nonetheless, I like how this ends with them in the, you know, funeral carriage together. I like that it ends on the note of Annie because she is the heart and soul of both of these stories. She is not, not Laura and Susie, not Beatrice and Jesse. It is about Annie and Delilah. But in this case, we actually saw it end on Annie, which is exactly how the story should end. So good. Wow. You guys, I know this is a long episode. So if you're still here (laughs) with us, I got to say thank you so much for listening to us, share our thoughts and kind of dissecting these movies and what they had to offer in terms of representation in the years they came out in. Um, Again, I think that us here at the Old Soul Movie Podcast, we definitely want to explore more diverse films outside this month it's been very cool to take this time to look at historical aspects. And again, you know, maybe these are not the best representations ever, but I do think they are landmarks in terms of black women in their narratives being shown. 
I would agree. It's important to talk about. So with that, I mean, thank you, Isabella, for being on here and sharing your thoughts. And um, yeah, thank you so much to everyone who is joining in, celebrating with us. Also, thank you everyone who is participating in the Sydney Poitier movie tournament poll on Instagram. We have not at this point in time of recording, we do not know the winner yet, but we have seen a lot of passionate responses. And while we'll cover one this month, I guarantee you, we will cover a couple of the other ones listed on the bracket a little later on, either in the next few months, because there are a lot that people were really pulling for and they deserve to be shown for sure. I mean, Sydney Poitier, what a legacy. So Next week, we'll have another special movie celebrating uh, Black voices, Black art, um, Black storytelling. And again, yeah, I know this was long, but I think it was very worth looking at both of these side by side because it does tell a greater picture of a story in a societal point of view. I agree. agree. Uh, Where can they find us? Well, Emma, I'm so glad that you asked. Because on Instagram, they can find us at Old Soul Movie Podcast. On Twitter, they can find us at Old Soul Pod. And on Facebook, they can find us at The Old Soul Movie Podcast. (laughs) Terrific, terrific, terrific. Well, thank you so much. Feel free if you want to keep dialogue going. If you have thoughts on this movie, I would, either of these movies, I would love to hear your thoughts. I would love to hear what you think of the 1930s version versus the 50s version. If you have a preference, my preference is for the 50s version, but I do uh, give props to um, the breaking of the seal of the 30s version. (laughs) I think that's what we can thank them for. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So check them out for sure. Uh, I would say if you're going to watch one, watch the 50s version the 30s one is really just if you want a historical context of things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, check it out because I think it's a worthwhile, worthwhile story, worth your while. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone, I'll let you go. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us and see you next time.